Good evening, church. Uh, again, it's great to be with you as we uh, are going to now uh, get ready for our study in the, in the Psalms on, on Sunday night. And uh, we'll be looking at Psalm uh, 119, verses 137 through 144. And uh, the title tonight is Trusting God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. And it is truly, God, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, God. It it lights the way. It shows us the obstacles in life, God. And Father, it helps us to see clearly and to move about clearly, God. And Lord, we, we couldn't do that without your word, God. And before before we came to the light, God, we we did run around bumping into walls and dead ends and, and just getting battered and bruised in this world, God. Lord, so may your light open our eyes and our ears and our hearts today. And may we just see clearly. <clears throat> the things that you want to say to us, God. So, Lord, have your way this night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Psalm 119, 137 through 144. This passage deals with the righteousness of Jehovah God and his word. And it speaks to us about the struggles that all godly men and women have as believers. The struggles of a godly man when it comes to that which is righteous. We read in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. You know, it's a battle that takes place every day of our Christian life. The struggles against the world and, and our flesh and the spirit of God. Paul says, again, about this battle between flesh and spirit. He says, so I say, let the spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants to do. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Now, as Paul said... Our, our, our sinful nature is doing battle with the spiritual nature. And it's a constant struggle. And, and, and the one that's going to win, the spirit that's going to win, is the one that you feed the most. You know, if you're, if you're feeding the flesh, and, and, and you're giving in to your cravings and the lust of your flesh and the desires of your flesh. Well, the, the flesh is going to win out. But if you're fear, feeding the spirit of God, you know, through reading the word, through prayer, through fellowship, then the spirit of God is going to rule out and it's going to rule over you. Paul said also in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through, 40, uh, 14 through 35, Paul said, said this, So the trouble is not with the law. Because it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. Because I want to do what's right. But I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. 
But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another, pro, another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. I mean, Paul puts it so clearly. And again, notice he says, who will free me? Not what? Who? God. Only God through Jesus Christ. In these verses, the psalmist continues the theme from last week or from our last time together. Uh, The theme was God's word is wonderful. He continues that tonight in these verses. This is another why God's word is wonderful. He says, because God's words are totally righteous. He says, God's words, he says, your testimonies, your your word is righteous, God. Your word is perfect. It is holy. You know, so this is another reason, again, why he thinks God's word, why he knows God's word is wonderful. Because your words are totally righteous. The word righteous here means free from wrong. It's perfect righteousness. So let's look at verse 137. And the psalmist says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Lord, you're righteous. Your decisions are fair. And the source of righteousness is God's character. He can't be anything else but righteous. That's who he is. Now, verse 142 says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And the law of God speaks of his righteousness. In 137, he says, your judgments are upright. That is, they're morally erect. Look at verse 138. uh, And look what it says. It says, your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. Look at verse 144. He says, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. The psalmist's main concern was that while he was suffering... All right. Well, he was experiencing affliction that God allowed in his life. He wanted to make sure that the Lord wasn't blamed for being unfair to him. Because many times, you know, when we go through tough times or we suffer affliction and suffering, we blame God. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? Well, the psalmist here, his main concern is that I I don't want God to be blamed for anything that's happened to me. I I don't want God to, to be blamed for being unfair to me. He said, Lord, there is not the least bit of evidence that you're unfair, that you're being unfair to me in all that I'm going through. You've allowed this to come upon me, but not because you're unfair. He says, I want to take all the blame myself. It's my fault. And to say that the Lord uh, is righteous and that there is no unfairness in him. There's no cruelty in him. He's not being extreme in all that the Lord has brought upon me. You see, the psalmist thoughtfully and willingly approves of the righteousness of God during those times of severe and painful afflictions that God used for his training. And God's judgments are always just because he's righteous, because it's a perfect righteousness. He can't do wrong. Again, he is free from wrong. He never afflicts randomly. 
but in faithfulness for our good. Jeremiah 29, 11, The thoughts that I think toward you, God says, thoughts of peace and not evil. You see, it's God's will to be just. He can't be anything else. So a gracious and understanding heart will never complain or question God about the things that he does. The Bible reveals who God is. It reveals the character of God. The words in the Bible speak of his character. And if you're concerned about knowing what's righteous and and you want to behave and live righteously, you should study the Bible. That's where you'll find out. And I love what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And here's why. It's profitable for doctrine. That means to teach us what's right and true. He says it's for reproof. That is to teach us what's wrong in our lives. It's for correction. That is, it corrects us when we're wrong. He says it's for instruction in righteousness. That is, it teaches us to do what's right. Why? So that the man of God or the woman God may be complete, notice, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He gives us everything that we need to do what God wants us to do, whatever that is. Everybody who believes that morality is important and that it does matter should read the Bible. We can take comfort in that truth that, is in, that he is righteous. When we can't see the reasons for our trials and troubles, he's perfect. There's nothing wrong in him. So he didn't make a mistake. He's not being cruel. He's not being extreme. When I go through difficulties, we can be confident of this. We can be sure of it for, you know, that 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 of the truth that God is righteous and that the way he deals with us is also righteous. It's never unfair. The psalmist said in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and judgment are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness, justice, mercy, truth. They're the foundation of God's throne. They're basic parts of the way that God rules. And as God's representatives, we should deal with people in the same way. We need to make sure that our actions are righteous. That our, that we have to make sure that our actions are, are out of righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. We've got to make sure that it, that it springs from the Father's heart. Because you see, any unfair, unloving, Uh, dishonest behavior, that can't come from God. That that comes from me. You see, if if I'm a child of God, then I'm to be reflecting my father's nature. So if if I'm reflecting something opposite or contrary to my father's nature, you know, that's not God, it's me. It's all me. God never did, nor will he ever do anything that's either unfair or unwise. Because righteousness and justice are the very basis of his character, the very basis of what he does and how he rules. None of all his commandments or rulings ever changed from the rules of fairness and wisdom. Nor could anyone ever accuse God of being unfair or or foolish. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That is, everything is done according to to his righteousness. That is, he's free from wrong. He always does what's kind to his people and according to what his word says. He never contradicts himself. He never contradicts his word. God will never lead us contrary to his word. He never says one thing and then does another. 
verse 138. The psalmist goes on to say, Your testimonies which you have commanded are righteous and very faithful. Lord, the things that you decree are perfect. And they can totally be trusted. Everything that God has said in his word is right and it's truthful. It's righteous and it can be trusted right now. It's faithful and it can be trusted tomorrow and forever. And in every part of his inspired word, there is his divine authority and his omnipotence. And his word is given by his command. Not only the laws, but the promises are also commanded by the Lord. And so are all the teachings of Scripture. And so it's up to us to choose whether or not we'll accept them. They are declared by God's divine command, and they're not to be questioned. You see, they're characteristic of His Word. It's His nature, which means they're just like the Lord who has spoken them. And they're the basis of His justice and the Spirit of truth. God's word is righteous. It can't be condemned. It's faithful and can't be questioned. It's true from the beginning and it will be true to the very end. Now, all, all through history, people have tried to pick God's word apart. They still do, but they, they aren't successful. The righteousness of his commands, the righteousness, the perfectness of his word are to be the ruling principle of our obedience and supported by his sovereign authority. And his word requires our obedience because it's perfectly righteous and it's faithful. And as our heavenly father acts according to his character, his word requires that we act like our father. That we be fair to ourselves and to all those that we, that we deal with. And that we're true to all the service that we give to God and to our fellow man. What God commands us to do is righteous. Like I said, it's free from wrong. And what we're commanded to believe, it's faithful. And it's necessary for our faith and our obedience that we are convinced of this. James chapter 1 for 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In other words, God is the source of all good. And in this verse here, James clearly does not put up with those people who make foolish uh, excuses that it's somebody else's fault. You know, and I've heard, you know, at, at times throughout the years that, you know, when you've counseled, when I've counseled somebody, they say, well, that's the way God made me. How can he, you know, so how can God, you know, judge me or, or, or blame me? He made me this way. You know, they, so they're, they're actually blaming God for their sin. Or it was the environment I was brought up in. I grew up in a, in a, in a you know, a, a, a abusive home. And, you know, that's the reason for my behavior. You know, and so again, that's they, they, all kinds of excuses or or, the, you know, the devil made me do it. You know, the old saying for Flip Wilson way back. And most of you probably don't know who Flip Wilson is. But anyway, he uh, uh, saying that the devil made me do it. You know, a lot of times that's, you know, excuse that we give as well. Verse 139. The psalmist says, my zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Thomas says, you know, I am so angry because 
my enemies, Lord, they, they just, they, they've disregarded your word. They, they don't care about your word. And the psalmist here talks about these wicked men who just flat out hate religion. He says, my enemies have forgotten your words. The psalmist's words are describing here, or I should say, he describes a lot of churches today who don't completely deny and reject God's word and his instruction in the scriptures. But here's the thing. They live as if they did. They don't follow the word. They act as if God had never said any such thing. Like he never gave him any such instruction. Warren Wiersey said, many people are, are practical atheists. They may claim to believe there's a God, but live as though he didn't exist. They often hear your word, Lord. The psalmist is saying, Lord, they often hear your word, but they hardly paid any attention to them. So they forgot them right away. They willingly forgot your word. Just like your word went in one ear and out the other. Not just because they didn't care, but they never really planned to pay attention to it, God. This is probably wickedness at its lowest point. Showing their spite, showing their hostility toward the people of God. They have forgotten God's words or else they wouldn't live the way they do. We see also in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30 through 33, a great example of this. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another. Everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. But godly people, on the other hand, they show a great concern and care for God and for his word. David thought of those who forgot the words of God, his enemies, because they were enemies to religion. He thought of them automatically as his enemies because they forgot God's word. So the psalmist's anger here was eating away at him when he saw his enemy's wickedness. And he worked up such a righteous anger at their wickedness that it just tore him up. It just ate him up inside. A passion against sin should weigh heavy on our hearts to do what we can to fight against it wherever we are and to do everything we can to draw closer to God, to strengthen ourselves against sin. The worse others are, the better we should be. Verse 140 and 141. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. The psalmist says, Lord, your promises have been thoroughly tested. And that's why I love them the way I do. He says, I'm really nobody. I'm insignificant. I'm not important. And I'm despised. But one thing is for sure. I don't forget your commandments. The truth of the word has been tried and it has been tested. As if in the refiner's fire. And it's been found to be pure. There's no dross in God's word. There's no impurities in it. There's nothing corrupt in it. It's perfectly pure. 
In the Word of God, there is no error. It's infallible. It's pure in its content. It's pure in its language. It's pure in its spirit. It's pure in its influence. And it's pure to the highest degree. It's like very, very fine gold. It is very pure, the psalmist says here. And the psalmist's heart was joined to the Word of God. It was connected to the Word of God. It was like they were inseparable because of its wonderful holiness and its truth. The psalmist loved the Word of God. He delighted in it. And he tried to practice it. And he wanted so badly to be brought under its purifying power. Lord, cleanse me. Make me pure. The psalmist loves the Word of God. And every good man and every good woman who is a true servant of God loves the Word of God. Why? Because it lets them know their master's will. It also directs them. It directs them in their master's work. And wherever there's grace, there's a warm affection for the word of God. And the reason the psalmist loves God's word so much is that he saw it to be very pure. And that's why he loved it. Our love for the word of God is proof of our love for God. Because you see, we love the word of God for no other reason that it's pure It's error-free, and because it presents, it gives us a picture of our wonderful God. It gives us a picture of His holiness. And God's Word is designed to make us partakers of His holiness. And, and, you know, we read in in, in the Old Testament several times that, that for I am holy, you be holy. And in Hebrews, it tells us that that without holiness, we're not going to see the kingdom of God. Our salvation hinges upon holiness. It requires purity, and it is itself refined and infallible. It's free from all corrupt mixture. So you see, if we receive the truth of God's word, it will refine us. It will remove the dross from our lives. That is the impurities of worldliness and fleshly mindedness in our life. And in the middle of, of the psalmist's talk here, in his discussion about the righteousness of God's law, he gives another reason why God's word is wonderful. He says, because God's word have been tested and proved to be reliable. In other words, they really do give understanding. And they show us that God is a God of great mercy. And that God's word, they, they give direction for life. They give us victory over sin. And they, it gives us delivery, deliverance from man's oppression. God's word reveals God himself to us. And God's word teaches us what true righteousness is. And not only that, God's word shows that God, that, that God who has given the scriptures, can be trusted. Because all of his promises are sure. And they never fail to come to pass. First Kings 8, 5, 6, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. Joshua twenty three fourteen. Behold this day, I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. And then Jesus, Matthew 24, 34 and 35. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
have you found God's word to be totally true and trustworthy? The psalmist in his experience says, I have found the word of God to be true. It's been tried and it's been tested and it's been found true. Now, the psalmist says about himself, he says, you know, I'm, I'm small. I'm, I'm, I'm not important. I'm insignificant. But one thing was for sure. He was a man after God's own heart. And even though men and women have good qualities, that still doesn't always keep them from being hated. It often exposes them to ridicule. The ridicule of others. And, and it, you know, and others always try to make them small and insignificant, you know, in their own eyes. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, those are exactly the people that I've chosen, that God chooses. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the small things of the world, the unimportant things of the world. He's chosen the nobodies of the world to, take, to, be, to, to have an, an extraordinary part in the kingdom of God. And, at the, and you know, being small and being insignificant and being looked down on in the eyes of the world. That's an ordinary part of the Christian's life. To be despised by people. Worldly people. The psalmist was poor, yet he was godly. He was small and despised. Reason is because he took a firm stand for God and he was serious about godliness. Yet his standards can testify for him that he didn't forget God's laws. He wouldn't turn away from his religion. Even though it exposed him to people that hated him. And, and it didn't turn him away because he knew that it was created. It was created to test his faithfulness. When we're small and when we're despised. We have even a greater need to remember God's word. Because it will pick us up when we're down. It will strengthen us when we're weak. It will give us, you know, inspiration when we're discouraged. Verse 142. The psalmist says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Lord, your fairness is forever. It never changes. Your law is perfectly true. The last reason the psalmist gives here for why he thinks God's word is wonderful, because it's true. Your word is true. So much of what we hear from other news sources like TV and radio and social media, even those who are thought to be reputable and reliable is false. I mean, who trusts anybody's word today? Especially what we hear on the on the on the radio and TV and social media. I mean, look at all the stuff that has been said since this virus has broken out. The accusations. You know, uh, changing their mind from one day to the other. And not that they're purposely, you know, lying, but, you know, things, things are always changing every day with this pandemic. But look at all the different reports on the coronavirus where it started. Some say here, some say in China. Whose fault is it? Ours or China's? One, 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 one day we're told you should wear a mask and weekly we're told we shouldn't. You know, uh, we should use certain drugs to help. We shouldn't use them. China is our friend. No, he's our enemy. There are, you know, uh, one person says this, another person's that. Who do you believe? 
The only one we can believe is Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. I know what he said. I don't know the details. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I do know what he said is going to come to pass. You know, and, I, and, and I've been getting a lot of ask, a lot of questions about, right now there's a lot of, you know, uh, pastors that are talking about prophecy and how this virus, you know, um, um, you know um, goes along with it. Or do we see this in, in the prophecy? Or is this part of and, and there are so many different things. And, and when they say, what do you think? I go, I don't. I go, all I know is God said he's coming. Or Christ is coming. The signs, he says, when you see them, know that I'm at the door. And be ready. That's it. The details, I leave up to Christ. I don't know how these folks, and a lot of them are here and saying, you know, I don't really know, but maybe, and this could be. And and that's true. God said, nobody knows. What I do know is what the Bible says, and that's what I'm going to stick to. What the Bible says. Jesus said, look up for your redemption is drawing nigh. He said, watch and pray. He didn't say, hey, try to figure out the details. He said, watch and pray. And look up. Be ready. I'm coming. Jesus said these things would come to pass, but he didn't explain step by step how they would play out. Some time ago, a book was written called The Day America Told the Truth. And it said, Americans lie all the time and often for no apparent reason. How sad. Politicians lie. Directors of big corporations lie. Employees lie. Everyday people lie. And I'm not saying that they all do, but the majority. Is there anyone that doesn't lie? God. God does not lie. God is not a man that he should lie. Paul said in Titus 1, verses 1 through 2, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God cannot lie. Now, it seems like lying was a pretty common thing in Crete when Paul said this. Paul made it very clear from the very start that God can't lie. He said in Romans 3, 3, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. God is true. The foundation of our faith is trust in God's character. Because God is truth. God is the source of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And John said, Satan is the father of lies. Can you imagine if God lied? How could we ever trust him? You know, when somebody lies to you, it's hard to trust them anymore because you don't know if they're lying. You know, it, 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 it you know, puts a, a, a stain on their character. But God has never lied. And every word that God has spoken is true and it can be trusted. Every single word. Now, that's something that's really wonderful. The scriptures tell us God's word is righteousness. Again, free from wrong. And it's not a temporary righteousness. It's an everlasting righteousness, the psalmist said. It's the rule of God's government. He rules based on his righteousness. Therefore, he will never make an unfair judgment. 
His word agrees with his counsels. In other words, he would never counsel anything against his word. And God's word will will direct God's judgment all through eternity. The word of God will judge us. It will judge us in righteousness and it will decide where we're going to spend eternity. So this should give us a very great reverence for the word of God. That is, it's righteousness itself. God's word is the standard of righteousness. It's everlasting in its rewards and in its punishments. God's word says that the believer in Christ is going to receive eternal life. Our rewards. And those who, who, who reject Christ will be punished. So God's word is going to bring rewards as well as punishments. And notice that God's word is a law. Is a law, and that law is truth. So this makes us doubly responsible to be ruled by the word of God. It's God's word and it's truth. And, and, and you know, Isaiah said in Isaiah 118, come, let us reason together. God's given us a brain. That means we're reasonable creatures. And because we are, we have to be ruled by truth, recognizing the power of God's truth. And if God's words are true, the things that we do and the way we live, hey, they should align with the word of God. Or else we're not acting reasonably. We are his creatures. God made us and that makes us subject to a creator. And that means we have to be ruled by our creator. And whatever he says, we are held responsible to obey as a law. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your, del- your commandments are my delights. This one really ministered to me, and I've read, you know, as I study more and more, but it says, you know, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, but notice, your commandments are my delights. He says, you know, as the pressure and the stresses of life weigh me down, I can still find joy in your commandments. Because they lift me up. They, they, they bring me delight. And your word is always fair. And, and it helps me to understand my burdens. That I, might, that I might go on living. The psalmist again acknowledges his constant obedience to God and his duty to God. Even in spite of the many difficulties and discouragements that he's going through. It's, I mean, that, that's just a, such a, a, a comforting verse. Though my troubles have overtaken me, I can find delight in them. Because of your word, Lord, it lifts me up, man. It, it, it strengthens me. It promises so many awesome things. In verse 141, he said, I, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Now, in verse 41 here, this first part, he he finds himself not only lowly, but miserable. He's about as miserable as this world could make him. But in the second part, he says, trouble and anguish has overtaken me. That is, I'm still in the first part of verse 41. He says, I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget. Trouble and anguish has overtaken me. He says, I have trouble on the outside. I got misery on the inside. Those things caught him by surprise. They got a hold of him. They've held on to him and they won't let go. And as we all well know, sorrows are often a part of life. 
part of life of Christians. You know, and, and they, they weigh us down through many temptations. But in the second part now, he said, in spite of that, in spite of, you know, uh, of being small and despised, in spite of the trouble and anguish that's overtaken him in the first part of verse 141, the second part, he says, yet I do not forget your precepts. He says, here he's showing now his faithfulness at a higher level. He says, your commandments are my delights. He's saying all this trouble and all this misery, it hasn't caused him to lose his desire for the word of God or to seek the comforts of God in the word of God. He could still enjoy them. He could still find that peace and pleasure in them. In spite of all the catastrophes in his life, that comfort and that joy and that delight couldn't be taken away from him. There are delights, all kinds of delights in the word of God that Christians can and do often enjoy when they're in trouble and when they're suffering. But you got to read the scriptures. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Though as Christians we may suffer a lot of things, also as Christians our consolation abounds in Christ as well. Our comforts abound in Him. A lot of people think that when God comforts us, our problems should go away. But if that was true, if that was always true, people would turn to God only for the reason that they wanted to be relieved of their pain and their suffering and not for their love for him. Wrong motive. It's like many times we say, oh man, I'm so tired of this world and I'm just so tired of, of going through this. I just, I want Jesus to come. Well, it's true. But the motive should be, you know what, Lord? I love you so much and I want to be with you so badly. I want you to come for me. We have to understand that being comforted can also mean being, receiving strength, encouragement, and hope to deal with our problems. The more we suffer, the more comfort God gives us. And if you're feeling overwhelmed tonight with all that's going on in our world, let God comfort you. And remember that every trial that you go through will help comfort other people who are suffering the same kind of things you're suffering. We read in, we read in, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Notice, who comforts us in our tribu tribulation. Notice, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. The psalmist acknowledges again here the everlasting righteousness of God's word as before in verse 142. He says, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. They're forever. They're eternal. They can't change. They'll never change. And when you let the power of God's word into your heart, that's where it becomes an abiding principle. That's where it, it becomes an everlasting standard in your life. It's like a well of living water, John 4.14 says. 
we ought to meditate a lot more and more often than we, ought, than we do on the fairness and the eternity of the word of God. In closing, look at one, verse 144. And the psalmist finishes with here this, this stanza, with the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Notice, give me understanding and I shall live. He says, Lord, again, he says, Lord, you, your laws are always right. But he says, help me to understand them so that I may live. Now, this is a prayer that the psalmist is constantly praying, that God would give him understanding. And here it seems that he's, he considers this, this gift of understanding is absolutely necessary to make him better. And it's only when we know and grasp the things that God says that, that really gives us life. And he, and he says, you know, if I can only grasp the things, the, the things of God, he says, then I'll really be living. He says, your laws are always right, Lord, so help me to understand them. And then he adds to this by suggesting his prayer for grace. He's, he says, Lord, give me understanding. He's, Those that know a lot of the word of God, I mean, they should still want to know more. Because there's so much more to be known. We should never reach a plateau and think, well, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I've heard people say, you know, I, you witness to them, say, well, I've read the Bible many times. You know, it's like saying, you can't tell me anything I don't know. And yet, I believe in all eternity, we could never, le- never learn the richness and the deepness of the word of God. Because it's God's word and it speaks about God. And I don't believe we can ever learn the depth and the, and the greatness of God. And God's word is about God. There's so much more to be known. Now, the psalmist, I like this. The psalmist isn't saying, Lord, give me more revelation. In other words, Lord, give me more, give me more info. He says, no, give me more understandings about the things that I do know. He give me understanding, Lord, about the things that I read. A lot of people read the Bible for, for, for knowledge, for, for an intellectual knowledge. But not understanding. The psalmist, though, he wants to understand the things that he's reading. He, you know, he, he wants to, 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 to understand what God shows him. What God shows us, we should want to understand. And what we know, I'm sorry, and, and, yeah, and, and what we know, we should want to know better. And we have to ask God. We have to go to God and we have to ask him for a heart to know. Then he adds to, uh, again, uh, this prayer, his hope of glory. He says, Lord, give me, understand, give me this, uh, this renewed understanding so that I can live. And uh, live forever. He says, I shall be eternally happy and I shall be comforted now in the present time and in the future. In this life, which is eternal, is to know God. This is life eternal, to know God. And Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17, 3. How do we get eternal life? Jesus tells us clearly in this verse, by knowing God, the Father himself, through the Son. Eternal life requires entering into a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. 
When we admit our sin and we turn away from it, Christ's love lives in us by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for such a great, great chapter, Lord, a great stanza here, these verses. And Father, we do pray for those that may be watching, Lord, who don't know you. The Father, they would come to know you by what they have heard, God. The, the, the soundness of your scriptures, Lord. The beauty of your word. The power of the Holy Spirit reaching into their heart, God. For those that may not know you, that they would want to know you tonight, God. And want to receive you, Lord, by saying a, a prayer of repentance and a prayer of faith. Confessing their sins, Lord, that they are a sinner. And that, Father, they have sinned. And that they want forgiveness. They want to be cleansed and washed of all of their sin. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And to begin to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And to walk with you every day. And to be thankful for the cross. And that you died for our sins. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.